From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is edge computing and 5G, with immense amounts of data being created and analyzed on devices and at the edge. Network speed must also be a priority to process that data in real time so users benefit in the moment from insights. Two words for you, 5G everywhere. My guest is Nick McEwen, who is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Network and Edge Group at Intel Corporation. He is also Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Stanford University. Nick has founded five networking companies and received more than 25 industry awards, including the 2021 IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Intel Corporation. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you recently joined Intel in a new role that brought together the Network Platforms Group, the Internet of Things Group, and the Connectivity Group into one single business unit. How did you actually merge these groups and then prioritize workflow, culture, as well as innovation? Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question. As you um, as you said from my from my background, I came to this role both as an entrepreneur from having started a number of networking companies, as well as being a professor at Stanford, but also helping to sort of challenge the networking community over a long period to think more in terms of software the software that drives the infrastructure. In fact, I always credit uh, uh, MIT Technology Review for the invention of the term software-defined networking, which was used as a term to describe a project that we were doing at Stanford about 15 years ago. And it really so captures the the way in which the networking industry has moved in that in that time. So as I as I came into this role, you know, I was looking at three businesses that we already have in place. And the Network Platforms Group is really our 5G and our private and public network technology and products. Our Internet of Things Group is is really an enterprise uh, Internet of Things. So things like factory automation, uh, support for the transportation industry. And our connectivity group is really cloud networking. And this is all of the networking that takes place in big cloud data centers. So in some ways, three very different businesses that work in very different ways. But on the other hand, all having this common thread of networking, networking technology, and things that connect to it and take advantage of that network. Three very solid businesses that are doing an extremely good job already with senior leaders who have a very deep understanding of the technology and the and the way in which those businesses are evolving. So on the, on the face of it, a, a relatively simple task to come in with such an established set of, of leaders, strongly collaborating together already, particularly between our network and uh, our sort of IoT, because you know that what we traditionally think of as mobile network operators, many of the things that they have developed and evolved in the last few years with 5G are now becoming very relevant to the premises of, of edge customers. People doing factory automation is a good example, retail applications where there's more 
uh, analysis that's being done out at the edge. And in some cases where they want the communication technology that we've developed for the mobile operators, 5G, private 5G with new new parts of spectrum that are available. And so there's a sort of a lot of commonality between those. Similarly, between our sort of our 5G networking business and our cloud networking business, a lot of commonality because uh, the the teleco industry as a whole is really in a in a in a uh, state of flux right now. Five G was the first really software driven, software defined uh, technology where the walled gardens of old are sort of crumbling, and as they do so, the telco industry is going through a change. The cloud service providers are now moving in and trying to figure out how they can help, maybe how they can take some of that business for themselves. And so there's a lot of sort of turmoil and new sort of strategic initiatives between them. In terms of the technology that we provide, we love for the fact that there is a huge amount of innovation going on. We supply the technology to the mobile operators, to those building the public internet, as well as the cloud service providers. So as they figure out new business relationships between them, we try to provide them with the agility and the programmability that allows them to morph that business as they figure out the uh, the new ways to the new ways to build it. And we have strong customer collaboration. Many of the customers that we work with are common across these businesses between networking and the edge. You may have seen that we recently uh, announced a very close co-development of our new infrastructure processing units with Google. Well, those IPUs will be very useful for uh, carrying communication workloads at the edge as well. So we're partnering with uh, uh, communication service providers. We work very closely with Rakuten. We've announced that recently. And we, re- we work very closely with companies like Audi who are deploying new uh, AI inference on the factory floor in tight collaboration with uh, compute that, resi- that resides either on that floor or nearby in a colo facility. So communications, processing at the edge, AI inference, all sort of coming together under this, uh, under this common framework. And AI inference is that ability to use computer vision to scan, say, cars coming off the, sh- the factory floor, parts or pieces, and to see like what could be incorrect with them right there, then and there, to fix that problem. That's right. So it's a it it, it, it turns out to be a very big and and interesting application of machine learning. Where you know one example could be. If if, uh, if if a robotic welder is welding the, the frame of a car and is doing many, many welds, clearly you need those to be done quickly, to be efficient, and you also need them to be done with high quality. And so in the past, uh, it's been it's required a lot of manual intervention and manual manual checking to make sure that those welds were of sufficient quality. Nowadays, what we can do is not only have a camera that is watching that welder in order to look at the quality of the weld, but in real time, be able to react and fix a weld or very quickly reject a weld and bring in a human to be able to check and then to to fix it if need be. So using inference as a way of understanding what a good weld looks like through training um, and then through inference, very, very quickly identifying that, uh, that problem. So that would be a sort of a, a typical example, or it could be a little bit more mundane, a, a camera that is in a shop that's sort of understanding the, uh, the, the movement within a shop in order to be able to understand how, uh, you know, where to place merchandise, um, inventory management, things like that. So plenty of opportunity here. What is intelligent edge computing? 
And what are some of those technological advances driving it? Yeah, so, you know, roughly speaking, broadly defined, edge computing is is taking the the, the technology resources that we that we've been developing over many years for the computing industry and using them to to analyze and process data at the edge, perhaps store data closely um, so that it's more private and so we have more sovereignty over the over the data, but placing that data and the compute close to each other where they're generated and consumed at the edge. So that's that's it roughly. Um, while it would be tempting to take data that we produce from cameras, et cetera, at the edge and move it all the way up into the cloud, that's often not the right thing to do. It may take too long. So it may be a latency constraint where we don't have the, the tightness of control that we need, or it may be just too expensive. And, uh, uh, and, and, and thirdly, we may worry about if we move it out of the location that it was generated, what's going to become of it um, from, a, from a privacy or a security point of view. Intel itself is a fairly good example in our factories. Um, we typically have two networks. We have a network, which is sort of an IT network, which is a traditional uh, network that you would see in an enterprise. And then we have the operational network, which is used to both control all of the machines and monitor everything that's going on. And the data, the operational data that's traveling over that network is Intel's super secret source. This is our differentiating knowledge about how to do manufacturing. We would never send that to the cloud. And so we would uh, we would want to keep that, process it, analyze it, and so that kind of factory automation um, is typical of anyone who has a modern manufacturing facility. So being able to do that close by, and in order to be able to do that close by, you can have higher uh, higher data rates between the whatever it is that's gathering the data, so cameras, sensors, etc., and a very tight control in terms of low latency back to the actuators. So if you're moving a robot, determining how a robot arm moves, you may only have one or two milliseconds in which to make a decision. And so you need that proximity because you couldn't do that if you had to go off to a, to, to a site that was was further away. So if you combine that low latency, that high data rate, and that privacy, then you end up with a solution which is self, almost self-contained at the edge. Clearly, it communicates to the outside world, but from a computation and data, almost all of that is taking place at the edge. So much so that we're expecting that um, within a few years, say by 2025, more than three quarters of all the data that's that's being created will be created out towards the edge instead of in in centralized data centers, and that's just because of this huge emergence of this kind of application at the edge. Yeah, that's a nice stat from um, the Gartner team, uh, really showing the change of data being processed in data centers to actually the edge, wherever that may be, on device on oil platforms uh, on factory floors, as you mentioned. That's right, yeah. yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier that partnership with Google with mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure processing units or IPUs. Why are, why are they important in today's cloud data center? What's that differential right there that people will start hearing more about an IPU? The IPU or the infrastructure processing unit is really a new class of device that um, Intel has recently introduced. Um, They often get confused with what people used to call smart NICs or smart network interfaces. You know, I'll I'll explain in a moment why they're radically different from from that. And uh, in fact, this term smart NIC is a bit of a a misnomer. Um, the, The IPU is 
helpful initially for someone who is operating a large data center or a or a cloud. So consider a company like Google. They have to have software and hardware that actually implements the cloud. And then they have servers that run their tenants, their customers' uh, software workloads on top of that cloud. Now, when we look at a data center, what we see is rows and rows of servers. And so we think, oh, yeah, of course, they're going to run the infrastructure code that operates the cloud as well as their tenant workload on the same servers. It kind of makes sense, right? That would be the, the most efficient way to do it. The problem is that if you, if you do that, you spend a huge amount of time, effort, and resources trying to make sure that the tenant's workload over which they have no control, they're just renting, renting out the compute, they don't know what that, that, that workload is doing. They're trying to make sure that it doesn't disrupt either the infrastructure itself or other tenants, because they've got to maintain the isolation between the tenants, but also with the infrastructure itself. I mean, it would be terrible if the tenant workload was to actually bring down the infrastructure and bring down the entire cloud. And then, of course, nobody gets anything done at, at, at all. So they put a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of uh, resources into into trying to do that. What the IPU does is it allows them to run that infrastructure code that operates the data center in a separate uh, and secure and isolated um, uh, set of, of, of CPU cores. And that way they can use all of the servers that are the other side of the sort of PCIe bus or whatever the bus is that connects that IPU to the server. They can use all of those to, for, their, for their tenants. And it makes a much simpler model for them and a much more secure and isolated model. So this is the primary interest for, for the cloud service providers. Um, other cloud service providers sort of heading in the same direction. My guess is that we will, in fact, I'm very convinced of this, if we look back in, in five or six years' time, we'll see that there has been a change in the way that the cloud data centers are moved, such that the IPU is the kind of the coordinator of traffic that comes in from the outside, determines which CPU or accelerator or memory that it goes to, and then sort of um, uh, is part of the communication that goes goes on between those to sort of coordinate it. And so it's almost like a coordinating uh, device as well to make sure that that communication takes place in a secure way, but also extremely fast and with low latency so that it doesn't uh, uh, negatively impact the performance of the cloud. So certainly that's important for the cloud service providers and something maybe most folks won't necessarily see on the front lines, but to know that your data is actually in a more secure environment um, that certainly and isolated um, is is one of those things that would help businesses perhaps choose cloud providers as they go forward because they want to make sure that uh, as cybersecurity um, attacks become more frequent that somehow their, their data is safe, correct? That, that's right. Um, first of all, having that uh, confidence that the cloud service provider, that their infrastructure is going to stay solid and isn't going to go down, that obviously gives peace of mind to the, to the tenant because you don't want to be part of a cloud that is, uh, that, that is constantly going down for security or, or for any, um, any uh, uh, perhaps you know, it gets attacked from either a tenant workload or from, from the outside. So that kind of isolation gives you a lot more uh, peace of mind and comfort that that's, that's not going to happen. Second thing is 
Um, if you're running a workload in a cloud, then you you obviously want as high a performance as you can get in terms of the networking capacity between the different compute elements that you've rented or leased from the from the cloud. And the IPU helps construct the microservices that most modern applications are constructed from. So those microservices are small self-contained pieces of code that are offering a service, a well-described service that could be spread over tens, hundreds, or thousands of servers. The IPU helps stitch those together with low latency, secure, high bandwidth pipes between those different workloads that make up the overall tenant software application that they've, they've developed. And so the IPU is really sort of helpful to the, uh, to the tenant as, as well. Hmm. So getting back to 5G, what do you see the role of 5G in edge computing? What are we going to see more of? Well, there's a number of ways in which 5G is going to play out. Um, you know, when we think of 5G, for most of us, it's just that 5G logo we see on the top right-hand corner of our mm-hmm. phone um, as it begins to appear. And so, for the for the end user, for for a client with a with a phone, and then maybe with a laptop in the in the near term, um, we we will see that as primarily as higher data rates. And so, that's the obvious way in which we'll, we we will see that. Early indications from Korea and from China indicate that when consumers have 5G, they typically increase the amount of data that they're downloading per month by about threefold, about 3x. That's largely because you know they're getting quicker access to more video material. That video material will be higher quality because now we have higher quality screens on our phones. So the, the consumption of data is certainly going, is going up as a consequence of that high data rate. And so therefore the infrastructure itself provided by the operators, they need to match that by rolling out their 5G networks. And those 5G networks need to be very high capacity. Um, and uh, whether they are a mobile operator of the the you know the more traditional form, the, the national uh, telco operators around the world, and of course they're some of the earliest and the ones with the, the greatest need to roll out that, that that infrastructure. But as they do so, there are opportunities that start to uh, to emerge because five G, um, the data rate, the latency, the control that you have over the 5G network means that we can start to use it for applications that we would not have previously thought suitable for a cellular uh, technology. So things that we would not have done with 2G, 3G, 4G in the past. For example, that robot arm that I was talking about earlier, if you want to actually control that robot arm in real time, you either need to have a cable, a wire, an Ethernet cable that connects to it in order to be able to give you the guarantee that you've got connectivity, the data rate that you need, and the low latency control, or you need to replace it with a wireless link. Now, imagine that that robot is moving around. You really don't want a wire trailing around on the floor for Mm. other robots to trip over. You'd really like it to be a wireless link. And the problem is that that Wi-Fi hasn't really got there just yet in terms of the quality that you would that you would want. What five G, in particular, private five G, offers is a much more reliable, much lower latency, much more controlled by software experience. And so now, what you can do is have a very high quality link that is comparable to the wire that you've just replaced it with, and. Uh, 
that will actually open up a huge number of new possibilities and new applications. So if a robot is moving around on the floor at a few miles per hour, you may only have a one or two milliseconds in which to change its direction. You need high, you need a high likelihood that you can both observe it, analyze that movement, and then control it from the, from the outside. In order to be able to do that, you need the you need links of of the quality that private five G will provide. So this is where we think that one of the early applications of private five G at the edge will take place. And you're doing quite a bit of work in your research with five G and connected edge to cloud um, opportunities here, uh, including something called Project Pronto. What is that? And with Project Ponto in mind, what kind of long-term ideas do you have about programmable forwarding and advancements in 5G itself? Yeah, um, you know, networking generally, whether it's the the public internet, uh, private networks, cloud networking, and mobile networking like 5G, they always used to be very, very distinct. They operated in different ways. They had different standards. Different companies produced the equipment. They were they were essentially walled gardens, or at least they operated in different silos. That really has changed in the last four or five years, as there's a sort of a common understanding that it's all coming together around the idea that the the network itself, whether it's the network in my in my home, the network in a factory, the network in the cloud, is all becoming more software defined under software control. And as that happens, it gets you to ask a number of questions. Um, first of all, if the network is software controlled, can I modify it and change it to do things that I want to do that I haven't been able to do in the past? Um, in the past all of the functions of networks were really locked down by and determined by standards and equipment manufacturers who had very little incentive to change. Once it's all based on software, you can start to try out new ideas. And some of the new ideas that people have been looking at are to do with having greater observability to be able to see what the network is doing at a very fine time uh, time scale observe what it's doing, and then when you need to, take corrective action to fix it. And the fixing could be things as mundane as a broken link, a broken piece of equipment, but they could actually be a functional incorrectness in the software that is controlling it. If you can actually monitor and see that in real time and provide a closed loop control at a number of different levels, at the low level for things that have just broken to a high level for things that are just functional or structural things that are incorrect, then you can start to have a a network that is more autonomous, that is more automatic, that is able to understand what it's doing and then compare that against your original intent, your original aspirations for that network. I know this sounds very lofty. And 10 years ago, frankly, it would have been considered absurd and ridiculous that you could even Mm -hmm. contemplate such a thing. Well, networking technology has moved along a lot in the last few years. Functions in the network like firewalls and load balancers and VPNs, things like this, that used to be in fixed function, have moved up into software. The mobile infrastructure, 5G, is the, the really the first example of a, fi- of a network infrastructure that has moved from fixed function hardware up into software. It Now all of the digital signal processing that used to take place on specialized devices now takes place in software. The switches 
the, the, the network interfaces, these new IPUs, they're all moved from being fixed function now to being programmable. So their, their behavior is defined in software. So now we're in the situation where the entire network is defined in software, programmable from end to end, as well as the control plane that controls it from top to bottom. So now it really is a platform. Once you've got a software platform that you can change its behavior, you can start introducing these previously absurd sounding ideas, these fanciful ideas of automate, automatic real-time closed loop control of an entire network, whether that is inside a cloud or whether it is over the entire country. What we were doing in Project Pronto was to develop a prototype to show the government, to show the world that it was possible to do this with technology that is available today and that we would do so with software that was predominantly open source. So we partnered with the Open Networking Foundation um, and was funded. it was funded by DARPA, by the uh, Department of Defense, in order to show as a showcase that this was now uh, this was now possible. So ONF developed Ether, A-E-T-H-E-R, an open source private 4G, 5G connected edge uh, platform that is uh, a cloud managed all in software programmable platform that will allow us to do this. ONF is doing it. A number of companies are deploying it as a sort of experimental in their labs. Universities at uh, Stanford, Cornell and Princeton are, are part of this, developing sort of new research ideas that they can demonstrate. Once it's all in software, it becomes much easier for graduate students and, uh, and programmers to try out their new ideas on top of this platform. One of these sort of key ideas is to verify in real time that the network is operating according to a specification, formally checking against that, that, uh, that, that specification in real time as packets fly around in the network. And this has never been done before. And uh, so, you know, it's a research project and so it will take a while to to prove out. But um, this I think is the direction that networks will go in. We will no longer think of them as fixed function entities determined by standards bodies. We will think of them as software platforms where we program them to do what we need them to do. Yeah, and that certainly is crucial clearly as uh, companies and technologies evolve and actually are, are demanding sort of these next evolutions of ideas and what is today's research project obviously could be tomorrow's um, product that um, people are investing in. So it, back to thinking about 5G and how that is evolving and at the edge and if, if most of the data is now coming from the edge, when we think about securing the edge what current or emerging technologies will help address those concerns? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, to put this into perspective, you might be asking why is it that, uh, what are the things that, uh, that our customers and, and users are most worried about protecting at the edge? One of the big sort of newly emerging concerns is the data models that our customers or, or our customers' customers in many cases have, have generated which is based on an understanding of their context. So it could be a data model where they have trained a model for understanding the particular layout of a factory floor and the movements that, that take place within it. And they may have developed a sort of a secret source, which is knowledge of how to do a or automate a particular process for which they've trained a model. And that, that model becomes extremely expensive, uh, extremely valuable. It could have been very expensive to create. It could be... Uh, 
you know, tens of millions of dollars to, to develop that model in the first place. But it's just code, right? At the end, it's a model that's represented just by the model itself. And so it becomes a very valuable asset of whoever has created that. So this is a new era for AI, for machine learning, and for the world of technology. And um, they would like to be able to train that model somewhere, it could be at the edge. It could be in a. It could be in the cloud or anywhere in between. And they want to be able to securely and safely move that valuable model out to the edge, where they can then run the analysis in real time with data streaming, for example, off a off a camera or off a set of sensors. So, in order to be able to do that, there's uh, a lot of care must be you know must be taken in order to be able to 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 move that model because it's very hard if someone was to um to be able to get access to it to tamper with it it's rather hard to tell whether these models have been tampered with or whether someone has uh has acquired one or stolen one and then selling that on to to others so we've been developing a lot of security products um uh, so intel's sgx and tdx products have been developed specifically with this in mind of protecting models and make sure that when they're in transit they can be they can be secured. This sort of data privacy and protection of this asset is is going to be very important in the future as these models become more tightly intertwined with the way that we do business. And that security by design kind of philosophy really takes precedence, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's right. The security of the, whether it's the inference models or, of course, other private uh, data that uh, companies have, have shown a, you know, a concern or a lack of willingness of moving to the cloud, figuring out how you secure that, whether it stays at the edge or whether it's moved to and from from the cloud is, is going to be so important over the, over the next few years. And speaking of the next few years, how do you see edge computing evolving? What are some of those more tangible aspects we'll start seeing, um, you know, for example, uh, you go into a supermarket now and and you can sort of pay as you go um, with a handheld device. That's a very kind of common experience here in the United States. But then with autonomous cars, uh, as you mentioned, factory floors, will we actually start seeing this uh, effect of real-time processing more and more at the consumer and then maybe more immediate business level? The simple answer is whatever we think is going to happen in terms of the combination of new IoT apps combined with this uh, both public and private 5G, whatever we think that is going to happen, it will actually shock us that people will come up with applications that we won't think of. And that's because it's the wild pioneering West. And it's wonderful. It's exciting. It's terrifying. It's growing. It's expanding, and it's uh, it's a very, very healthy area of massive amounts of innovation, entrepreneurship, and competition. And it's just just super exciting to watch. Every day, every week, I see a number of different use cases that our customers or their customers have put in place that we would never have have thought of. So you may have seen things like these smart delivery bots. You know, frankly, if you if you told me a few years ago that we would be seeing uh, a delivery within towns and cities where there would be delivery of that was taking place through autonomous vehicles that would walk down the uh, the sidewalk, climb the stairs, and deliver right to someone's door, I would have said, okay, you know, maybe fifteen or twenty years. Those are being tested and rolled out right now. 
Um, we showed an example of that our Intel innovation event last week for the the Roxo smart smartbot that was de- that we developed a collaboration with FedEx. This is a kind of a good example of something which is in some ways ahead of what people would have predicted, but it is just the tip of the iceberg for the things that people are doing. In that particular case, it's able to exploit the the reliable high data rate of 5G and then IoT inference applications that are running on the sensors and the actuators for that device in order to be able to understand where it is, to make sure that it's safe as it as it uh, sort of moves moves around. But But that is just one visible example that we will all see when you go into a warehouse, into a factory, the sort of places that not many of us go typically, you will find that the control and automation that takes place because of those sensors that we're seeing, the actuators, the network based on 5G, the combination of those is going to really create a sort of a Cambrian explosion of new ideas that will take it in ways that if we were to try and predict, we would get it wrong, frankly. Our job as Intel is always to produce the technology, the programmable technology that allows our customers to do things that we wouldn't have thought of. And that really is you know, the, the right way to think of us uh, and, and, and for us to think of our role. We're creating the software, the hardware, the platforms that enable them to develop those exciting new applications on top. Yeah, and that is what what is so uh, I guess opportunistic about all of these factors coming together, and at this time, including as you mentioned earlier, the reemergence of software as a force in networking. Right. So, how is software coming back into networking? Uh, mostly because I think people think of um, networking as mostly hardware, and uh, perhaps that's yeah. not what we we need to think of anymore. Yeah, you know when the when the internet was first defined back in the late sixties and early seventies, there was this saying that uh, that instead of having sort of traditional slow moving standards, that um, the internet would be defined by a loose consensus and running code. What that tells you is there was an attempt to move away from the rigid slow moving standards bodies and move to a, a time where you could actually define functionality in terms of code. So it was a great idea, and it didn't happen. Right? The internet became bogged down in, in way too many standards, way too many committees, way too slow moving. And through the needs of having um, high performance and the growth, the unexpected growth of the internet, a lot of it moved to fixed function hardware. And that was in part to get the performance that, that people needed, as well as the uh, the low cost uh, that was and, and the low power that was needed for the, uh, particularly for the public internet in the, the the big exchange points. So we went through this era from in the nineties and two thousands when that which had been kind of op- intended to be open and simple and fast moving and agile moved to being bogged down and ossified and very slowly moving. And then there were a number of things that started to happen because it meant that the the, the internet was no longer innovating. And when I say internet, I mean networking broadly defined, whether it's in our homes, in in the cellular networks, in Wi-Fi, in enterprises, in the public internet, as well as inside cloud data centers. And it started really with two things that happened at the same time. First of all, 
was the realization that a lot of functions that were wrapped up in fixed function hardware, and I mentioned these these earlier, um, firewalls, load balancers, gateways, um, uh, and and you know even spam detection devices, things like this that were that were in hardware could actually be placed in software where you could scale them out by replication of the software when you needed during times of surge and then uh, be able to change and modify them as you needed. And this was known as Network Function Virtualization, or NFV. This started in around about 2010. And it coincided with this software-defined networking movement, which was really about turning those closed proprietary equipment into software that was running on software platforms. And that's how the big cloud service providers have built their networks ever since. What they do is, instead of using fixed-function devices, they buy silicon, they program it, they run software on top that they write, and then they control it in a manner that allows them to control the reliability, the security, and the new features that they need over time. More recently, the same thing has happened with VRAN or Virtual RAN, where the 5G infrastructure, the radio access networks, have moved up into software. Intel produces a software called FlexRound that runs on our Xeon processors that moves the 5G into software running on those on those Xeon processors. And more recently, at the edge, the functions that were uh, that were being baked into uh, baked into the hardware at the edge have moved into AI inference models running on our OpenVINO platform, which is an inference uh, software that allows developers to develop models and then use those models very, very efficiently at the, at the edge. There is many more examples of this, but I, you know, and I could probably go on all day. It's one of my favorite topics, but essentially all these things that were being thought of as baked into hardware or on specialized accelerators or in, in uh, custom hardware are lifted up and out into software. What this means is it becomes all about what the customer or the end customer wants that system to do. It's no longer determined by us. I always like to say no chip designer ever operated a big network. Why do I say that? Well, if you bake the function into hardware, then the the functionality of the entire network was determined by a chip designer, but they've never operated such a network. So how the heck can we expect them to get it right? Of course, they're not going to get it right. So everyone was super frustrated that this functionality was baked in, but those who had to operate networks for a living couldn't do it in an efficient manner where they could fix it, improve it for themselves. So by moving it up into software, so the chip designer is now creating a, creating a programmable infrastructure, then it moves the definition of its behavior up to those who own and operate networks or inference devices for a living. So it becomes a software problem. And that means it can move at a much faster rate, and it's much more likely to solve problems that that chip designer never even knew existed in the first place. But what's more, those software developers that will then create beautiful new ideas on top of that platform that they have conceived of in need of the problems they are trying to solve. And that means it will not only innovate faster, but it'll innovate better as a consequence. And that's what we all want. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Business Lab. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice talking to you. That was Nick McEwen, Senior Vice President at Intel who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. 
That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.